Another day is here, and you're ready for it. What to wear? Check. Breakfast, lunch, and dinner? Check. Planning for what's next and how to save for it? That's where Bank of America can help. For your financial to-dos, Bank of America has experts ready to help get you closer to your goals. Get started at one of our local financial centers or 24-7 in our mobile banking app. Find a location near you at bankofamerica.com slash talk to us. What would you like the power to do? Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America and a member FDSE. Jermaine Franco right. in the house with, um, actually, it, the way it was framed earlier, I could see your name on the microphone, which I like. So in case oh, I have a momentary lapse of all oh. consciousness during our conversation, I can look <laughs> at the screen and say, oh, it's Jermaine. But that's not going to be well, a problem also, because there. I know you, yeah. Jermaine, which makes this really nice and easy, certainly for me, instead of, wow, I have to kind of understand who this human is and read everything. I've read everything about you, but I also really cherish the opportunity to have this conversation because oh, thank you. you may thank remember. Thank you so much. I'm happy to be here. Oh, that's so nice. I mean, you're just, I think the heat radiating off of you and the screen right now is could not be any higher with the number one album for the third week in a row. That's amazing, isn't it? You're a rock star. (laughs) Well, I'm just happy to be part of the project. I've worked on the project with Lynn and Byron and Jared. It was a great experience. That's so nice, and you're modest. Um, But there's so much to this, which, needless to say, I'm going to indulge in the opportunity just to hang out with you and catch up, because I know... I know you've done lots of interviews and well, how did you, I want to go to your memory bank to ask when exactly do you remember that you and I met? Can you tell me? Cause it um, all blends yeah, together. The first ice age um, first. that John Powell did. And I was his assistant and um, we, we worked together uh, I mean, I was in the way in the background. I was always at the sessions and, um, you know, serving coffee, <laughs> just getting him his scores up for each cue. Sometimes later on other films like Ice Age 4, I did um, booth for him and I was orchestrating. I don't, I wasn't orchestrating for him on Ice Age 2. And um, I just was so in awe of being there on the stage, you know, and being watching how everything worked and just loving it. You know, he was such a, he is still a mentor to me and, um, just being part of, uh, a music team was so exciting and that's how we met. Tell me two things. When was that in the last century or in this century? Um, I thought it was in, it was in this century for sure. Okay. Yes. Ice age Two might have been 2002 or four. Six. The Meltdown. Oh, no shit. (laughs) That's the name of my day. Um, Every day. (laughs) That word just came up yesterday. Somebody said, with all of us being inside all the time, I think I'm melting down. I thought, I understand that. The Meltdown. Um, Can you tell me, because, of course, I assumed... 
I mean, it's so funny. He's making coffee. I think, not to put too fine a point on it, you know, there's the tea boy is the name that the Brits use for the kind of assistant who's about to be a composer and makes tea for the composer, but is also kind of hanging around and plugging things in and making sure that sync is correct. And I think when it's, I wonder if I assumed you were the tea girl doing exactly that or, or had some unconscious bias thinking, Oh, that's just John's assistant. And I, I just wonder if I could dial back to that time, what my assumption was. However, and did I know or even know enough to assume that you were a composer? I don't know that. Tell me how you met John and ended up in that role. Uh, well, uh, I met John through my brother, who's an amazing artist. His name is Michael Petrie, and he lives in London, and he's lived there for over 30 years. He runs an art gallery called Mocha London. He's an artist and a writer, uh, art historian, curator. And at the time when John was working with my brother, John had was actually still at Trinity. Mm -hmm. And I just knew of this person named John Powell that was so amazing and Gavin Greenaway. Because the two of them had a trio with my brother. Um, they were called Media Arts Group. And they did crazy wild stuff your brother did the vi <laughs> your brother did the group. visual aspect and they did the music yeah and he the whole it was always his production and directing and acting and they did videos they did performance art crazy stuff and uh anyway he he moved with gavin to uh come to the states and they moved to la and that's when i first met him but i had known of him of just his, this, you know, person of who he was, but in, for my brother talking about a great musician, him and Gavin. And so when he moved to, uh, to LA to work with Hans, uh, both of them, Gavin and John did, I, I met him briefly. Uh, but I was actually living up by in the mountains by mammoth. Mm. <laughs> I had taken a little break from LA. I was living on a, in a little house with a stream and the, it was beautiful. And so I came back after living up there, I came back down and I had um, basically just said, I'm starting, I had to kind of start again in LA and asked him if I could work with him and learn from him. And he, about a month later, he's, he was in the middle of uh, the Italian job. And that was the first film I did with him. And I wound up playing percussion on it and, just just was overall you know assistant production assistant and then you know eventually later i wound up get taking on other roles so probably when you first met me you didn't know that i was also a composer no um, idea and you kind of very modestly graced over the fact that to work with john powell you couldn't just be well i'm just kind of I'm a ski bum living in Mammoth. I'm just going to come out and kind of <laughs> play percussion on your, you would obviously, were you thinking of being a film composer prior to John Powell was just this karmic yes. thing where your brother knew a guy who was a composer or did that change your trajectory that you knew John Powell? 
Well, I had uh, been working an independent film, and this part you don't know is the very first film I did um, was called Tanto Tiempo for Universal Hispanic Film Project, which had been, you know, several in the 90s. I was on the Fox scoring stage with Armin Steiner because I don't know if you remember giving the stage for that project, but I was a recipient and ben and benefited from the the you know the kindness of your department giving the, the stage. So my very first film score I scored at the Fox scoring stage with Armin, and that was uh, prior to meeting John, and it turned my world around by I had taken all my percussion and I was playing I played on the whole soundtrack I w it was the first one I ever did and Armin called up ASCAP and said hey you got to see this woman because <laughs> I was sort of you know already like had a trajectory as a performer and so and I was writing a lot of music for the Los Angeles Theater Center so the chance to do it on that huge stage, it I that's where I got hooked was at the Fox scoring stage. So I had done several independent films and television shows prior to moving up to Mammoth and lots of playing, lots of gigging. That's all of these uh, musicians I used on Encanto. Many of them I had been playing with for years. So uh, when I met John, I had... I had a, some demos of some things I did and I had done like a PBS, you know, film and it, it was all so small compared to the stuff he'd been working on, you know, but he also knew that I went to the conservatory and he listened to the work and just said, you know, yeah, come on. And if I hadn't had the conservatory training that I did, I wouldn't have been able to last a day at his studio. But I'd already, you know, been writing out all my own charts and didn't, you know, I wasn't at the level technically that I needed to be. I had, you know, one Mac and I was writing on that. But um, he propelled me into another stratosphere and it didn't happen overnight. It was many years of working with him. So, yes, I had that idea, but I really had no clue where it could land where i might land you know what i mean i love all of this and everything you just said there's a kind of it's like if we're driving down a freeway everything you said was an exit ramp that i wanted to follow to say um <laughs> first of all it's kind of karmic what you told me about tanto tiempo being on the fox stage and i wonder of course if 27 years before today on an afternoon, I walked onto the stage and you and I, here we are this many decades later, stood next to each other, unknowing that where our various career paths would go. Mm -hmm. Armin Steiner was such a legend at Fox prior to me coming to Fox that he was one of the few mm -hmm. people. So just the karma of this, they could ask, could I use the stage that I'd say, okay, you know, it was m mostly for Fox films, but if Armin asked, tell me about the conservatory. You said something really interesting, which conservatory and what skills did you bring forward that made you feel like at least I have a handle with 
John Powell. And then I want to ask about that well, one never... Mac. Oh, okay. Well, I uh, went to Rice University Shepherd School of Music, which is Fantastic. pretty much a classical yes. conservatory. Yep. In Houston? It's very... Yeah, it's in Houston. Yep. And I, once again, I went there because my brother went there. It was just, you know, it wasn't any big plan. I, I was, uh, 16 when I went to college and I, uh, we from Texas, my fam, yeah, from El Paso. And my, I guess my mom felt that if I went to where my brother was going, he was somehow going to quote, protect me. <laughs> so, uh, we did hang out, my brother and I, and um, he was he was doing art, and he would be doing sculpture. It was very kind of you know Renaissance in a way. Like he was in the patio doing his sculpture, and there I was. That's where the percussion room was, and I'd be practicing eight hours a day. And I, you know, I studied orchestral percussion and orchestration and arranging and harmony and theory and, you know, sight singing, all those things. And I was in every ensemble imaginable, you know, new music, stage band, marching band. Uh, but the marching band thing is a funny thing there. It's not like serious, mm -hmm. but mostly orchestra and ch lots of chamber groups. And also I had my own Latin jazz group that I used to book on, on campus. And I started making money playing right and realizing, oh, I can book this. So I was writing out charts and, you know, that's how I really got into writing was writing for my own ensemble. So I graduated with my master's degree from there and um, Thinking started maybe to you'd be a think, professional percussionist or band oh, leader? Oh, yes. I played in orchestras uh, in Europe. I played in the Spoleto Festival Orchestra Beautiful. and the World um, Youth Orchestra. It's called the World Orchestra mm -hmm. in Berlin. Um, I played there for six weeks. So I was, you know, working and I was playing in the Houston Pops, the Texas Chamber Orchestra, just gigging yeah. and, and then playing with my band. And I guess I loved my band more than, you know, I just, something came alive when I was playing with my band. And, you know, we'd play like jazz festivals and big festivals all over. And um, I started to really connect in college with my, you know, Latino heritage. And I would travel to Mexico and jam with Mexican musicians. <laughs> it's like, I just, I just loved Latin music. It was my thing. Of course. And so I had this kind of dichotomy and I just, I had an opportunity to come to LA and I heard Luis Conte. Alex Acuna, Kevin Ricard, all like the top ten percussionists at a at a uh, a panel, and then they performed together. And I just pointed out Luis, and I said, "I want to study with him." I don't know, and I didn't know anything about him. Yeah, but you identified. I just knew he the was top. the master. Yeah, yeah, and so I literally moved to L.A. with very little money and a car filled with percussion <laughs> instruments. <laughs> and uh, that's how I got here. <laughs> and you studied with Luis? Yeah, I studied with Luis and our friend Emil Richards. You have the varsity there. And with Alex Acuna, who <laughs> I saw when I was, I don't want to make Alex feel old. I was 16 and I saw Weather Report. 
and saw Alex play. Yeah. And then when Alex and Luis played on scores in front of me, it would be, you guys are legends, and now you're right in the room recording. And Emil, who I loved. It's so great. I I think I love this, hearing this, because everything I'm reading about you is so focused on Encanto and should be, because what a great achievement. Mm -hmm. And I'm going to go on record saying the first of a huge new part of Jermaine Franco's trajectory, because this is, I can only imagine how the world has just said, get her, um, which is so, but it's wonderful to hear how you got to this moment and that everybody thinks there's some magic formula. No, you're playing gigs and you're coming to LA with a car full of gear and you're stumbling forward. And I want to ask about the, when you, the ice age and the John Powell, because you and I spent a lot of time up there in Paseo del Miramar, whatever it was called. Um, <laughs> Yes, we won't say the whole right. name because for, yes, yeah. for but in the palisades, in the palisades, yes. and just I was always amazed working with John by among his many insanely brilliant skills, he had technical chops that blew my mind. He could sit yeah. at his keyboard and I'd say, Oh man, you know, they're all upset about this opening cue in Ice Age. And I remember that was one of the times. They don't like this and I think this is too slow and I think this part's too ponderous and they say, and I'm reading the notes that I got from the director, whatever it was, and John instead of let me think about it, would just in front of me rewrite a cue by dragging things around and playing stuff in. Did you have tech chops prior to working with John? Did you learn from him? Did you bring your own tech chops to that gig? Oh, definitely. I did not have the amount of chops <laughs> that I do now. I mean, he really just said, you got to get faster. And that was, it was true. I mean, I was just on one Mac and, you know, I had an M1 keyboard and I didn't have all the gear. No, I, I mean, I was able to record and I had a DAW and, you know, I was in DP, I had to learn logic to, to uh, work with him. It was all foreign. Um, and so that part was a lot of, you know, a, a, the learning curve was definitely steep. So um, I think I have to give credit to, you know, him and then the the texts that I worked with like Dan Lerner and TJ, you know Lindgren, they they really helped me and they saw and they were like, here, let me show you this, let me show you that, you know. And then also, um, for orchestration, I was working with John Ashton Thomas, my dearest friend. I mean, I he sat down and showed me how to use Sibelius and because I was you know writing out all mm -hmm. my charts by hand. So all his team really helped me immensely uh, to get where I am. And John, you know, you just, you have, it's learning on the job mm -hmm. at that point, you know, when I first, but I also, uh, you know, had the interest because I knew in order to keep the job, I had to get technically proficient. And would you, 
So. Would you take your work home with you? In other words, if you were in the middle of something and they were under the gun, I always wonder about this. Would you say, okay, I'm clocking out and I'll <laughs> see you tomorrow? Or would you drive home with that kind of anxiety of I, I know what I have to get done? Oh, yeah, I took home work a lot. I, I worked there, you know, six, seven days a week for many, many years driving up that hill. Um, with those so crazy curves, it was, it was, uh, you know, it, it was one of the best parts of my life. I have to say, I mean, I, I loved being in a situation where it's a creative, uh, hub and the person at the center was John and he's such a fine human being. And as we know, he's, I always say he's a genius musician. Um, like you were just saying, you know, fixing a cue right on the spot. I was never, I always say there was never a dull moment. I was always something going on and crazy stuff, you know, like on robots. I, he sent me on a task to go uh, get dog and cat toys. And then we took them apart. And then we, we stamped. So there I was in the cat store, Petco, <laughs> like, trying to get different tonalities of the toys and people thought oh that's a crazy person there i had like 40 cat toys you know banging them and then we went and tore them apart and recorded them made samples for all the crazy squeaky sounds so um you know stuff like that was just fun i mean there was fun and it was like a family and it, i grew up you know uh kind of in that in that home and and with his family and it was always just a you know a, a joyful place i mean there was stress from work but i enjoyed it very much that's so lovely to hear and there's something funny about the cat toys of course i was working on robots and flew to brooklyn with john uh -huh. probably a great expense to the studio and the music budget you were going to fly the these guys uh -huh. and maybe we had a couple people i don't know maybe you were there and we went to the blue man group's warehouse i remember that and yeah probably at great expense recorded them banging on those what are they called the pcr tubes or the pvp pcp yeah. Yeah. <laughs> you know we took pcp mm -hmm. um but i would be willing to say that your experiment in the cat store probably yielded more <laughs> usable material for free or just the cost of a tank of gas to get you to Petco and come back to Pals? Because I think, and I might be mistaken, but I think the feeling after a day or two in the Blue Man warehouse with the Blue Man group, with all their techs, banging on different size pipes, banging on stuff, I think we came away thinking, not so much. You know, cool, but... yeah. But I think Powell yeah. said something weird like, you know, Jermaine's got these cat toys that are bitching. <laughs> and so it wasn't yeah, that amazing. Funny. What a great, first of all, it's just, it warms me up. As Quincy would say, it warms my heart to hear you talk about John and what a wonderful person he is and what a genius he is. That combo is extremely rare in any human and in, certainly in our business. You usually get one or the other. You get a mm -hmm. lovely person who's just okay with their talent, but they're nice to vibe with. Mm -hmm. Or you get a stone-cold genius 
who's just impossible because they either know it yeah. or they're demanding or everyone says yes. And, and it's lovely to hear you mention that among the very rare group of humans is someone you described as your mentor. And uh, it's just lovely that and great good luck and it may be appropriate luck that that's where you came up. The question is, mm -hmm. was there a moment where here you are in this wonderful environment, this beautiful studio with a great teacher and friend and collaborators, and suddenly it's time for Germaine to go out on her own. Mm -hmm. Is that a difficult, yeah. is that like the teenager leaving the, you know, the uh -huh. nest? Is it, did you get pushed out? Did someone come to Powell and say, we want to hire you for a gig? And he said, I can't do it, but I have an idea. Because often that can be the trigger. Uh, how, did, how, how and when did that happen? Well, it was sort of progressive over a couple of years. Um, I started getting a, my own work as early as, you know, 2006. I kind of so remember that moment when you were out a little bit on your own. Mm -hmm. I was doing all my work in the morning at four in the morning, then I would go to work. And, um, and so I saw that happening, but I was, you know, still not ready. And then, um, it, I'm also a mother. So, you know, having a, a, a steady gig is important. And mm. so, um, one of the things that happened was in 2011, I got this film called Margarita, which was through Peter Afterman, mm -hmm. whom I know you know. Mm -hmm. And uh, what a really nice guy. Mm -hmm. I really liked him. And um, I worked with uh, uh, Dominique Cardona and Laurie Colbert, and they called me from Canada and said, we heard your music and we love it and we want you to do our feature for telefilm. And I, I was like, oh, great. You know, I had done a few things, but I really hadn't done like a more of a, was you know, indie feature that had, you know, government funding and had some money. So I did that. And John just said, I don't care what you do. You can't work for me for six weeks. You must do this. And he literally gave me a room in the studio. It was all my space. And I just, and I could borrow whatever gear I wanted. <laughs> And I recorded there I, some musicians, and I did the score in six mm. weeks. And uh, it it wasn't a huge hit, but it did well. You know, it was on streaming services and did well at a lot of festivals. And I I basically saw okay, yeah, I, this is this is probably the right time for me to to step out. And then. <laughs> couple things happen and I just stayed a little bit longer. And then by around 2013, we, we had the talk and he said, you know, you know, and I know we're both, you're doing your own thing now and it's time. And I said, yes. Okay. So how about we plan it? And we figured that I would, you know, finish Rio two and how to train your dragon two. And then after that I would leave. So we, we planned the final year. Hmm. And I was able to, you know, make the progression without having to just leave all of a sudden. What was I would leave so, mean? Because you were benefiting, you said, from using his gear and his studio. And suddenly, you, you know, there's an expense attached to that and a physical oh, nature yeah. of it. It was, 
It was tricky. It was definitely um, hard for me. I felt like I had kind of jumped off a cliff because mm. I, there I was, had this amazing, like, it was like a home, second home to mm -hmm. me. And um, so I just started, you know, doing things on my own and getting smaller jobs. And, um, and also, I, you know, who helped me was Hans, mm. Hans Zimmer and Steve. I mean, I went, I would, cause we had just done this concert for the 20th anniversary of DreamWorks animation. And I was in the composers band with mm -hmm. them. I was the only, only yep. woman and it was great. You know, and Lauren and Harry and, you know, just a lot of fantastic musicians and I was playing and, and, uh, on stage, it was at the Hollywood bowl. And so I reconnected with Hans cause I had done Kung Fu Panda one and two with him. And on Kung Fu Panda 2, Hans and Johns asked me to produce all the um, overdubs, mm. which I did. And it was at Hans's studio. So I had known him. So I let him know that I was leaving John. And um, they gave me a film. They gave me the film Dope, that which, which, which was I loved. Rick Famuyiwa's. It's a great, great film. Great movie. It did super well. Yeah, at Sundance. Yep. So here... I have to say, you know, it's all about support and friends helping you. And I will also say, you know, Sonny Park and Charlene Wong, who were at DreamWorks, um, now they're at a different company. Um, basically, they called me up and said, we know you left John's and we're going to find some work for you. And I was doing shopping mall experiences. I was doing for DreamWorks animation. I was uh, doing short films with Steve Hickner, who did the B movie and the Prince of Egypt. So I thought, oh my God, I'm doing this animation with this incredible team of creatives. Doug Cooper, who's at head of post at DreamWorks now. I mean, this was a great team. <laughs> um, and so even though I wasn't doing high power stuff, I was working as a composer and I thought it was fantastic. You know, I was just so happy to go to those meetings and drive onto the lot. And, you know, I'm a composer. Then eventually I got fellowship with Sundance mm. Institute, yeah. you know, got to go to Skywalker, Peter Golub, we get support. And just one, it, it was just, it was gradual. It wasn't like overnight. I, you know, yeah, I had to invest in all my, you know, I had my gear, but. I invested a lot more. I got my own space. I mean, it just took time. It's amazing to hear this. I, I don't know why. It's just, it's so both gradual and poetic in a way to hear. And also to kind of be having this conversation, not with someone who you can say, well, good luck with that. You know, I hope things work out. But you actually have something that I'm not sure... Of all the people you mentioned, Hans Zimmer, John Powell, Harry, Lorne, all these different composers, Gavin, different musicians. I wonder if any of them have a number one soundtrack. Jermaine does. I mean, they have <laughs> huge really movies know. and these are yeah. lustrous yeah. talents and the literally defining our age in music. But the irony is that among them, 
that percussionist in the back row at the Hollywood Bowl and the composers group has something that, you know, I look at all, listen, I was looked at all those soundtracks and worked on all those soundtracks. Number one soundtrack is just an incredible achievement. Incredible. And when I look at the listing on the Encanto soundtrack, you will know this for certain. I think there are six songs and probably 14 cues by you. Uh-huh. It's something like yeah. that. So it maybe even more, 20 cues. So the world is listening to you today. It's exciting. <laughs> it is really yeah. just a kind of, I mean, it's like some sports movie where the the hardest working member of the team who nobody paid attention to just threw the winning touchdown. Maybe I've been watching a little too much football, but you did. <laughs> oh, go Rams. <laughs> go Rams is right. I mean, I, I am dressed like a human being today, but you can bet on Sunday I was like Rams hat, Rams sweatshirt. I got all gassed up. I love that stuff. Tell me, Jermaine, before we let you go, Anything you can share about what's coming up next as you, as they, is there a parade like down Hollywood Boulevard, the Jermaine Franco parade where they put you on their shoulders? <laughs> no, and- I'm, uh, no, I, you know, I'm really happy that Encanto has done so well. I mean, I, because I put in a lot of effort and the team did, I mean, you can see it. It's a group effort. It's a creative co- collaboration of amazing talents and, you know, to be on the team with Lynn Manuel is huge. And the fact that he called me up and said, I want to work with you, um, frankly, uh, was a surprise to me. I was well aware of him. So I, I'm happy to be part of it and to have contributed, but I can't take, you know, full credit because it, it's, it was a group and the effort and all the actors and singers and, you know, Lynn's beautiful songs and, um, you know, my score cues, I think it just made a, a collective, you know, piece of art and film that I don't think would have made been the same with just one person making it. So I love, um, I listened I, to it in, both the first time just sitting there and the second time the entire movie in headphones and the way the songs are orchestrated into the score and vice versa score becoming songs is just masterful. Well, thank you. I I enjoyed orchestrating his songs. They're quite beautiful. And, and working on the transitions, it was really important to me that we didn't feel like, you know, that, oh, now there's a song. I believe there's eight. But, um, I mean, coming up, yeah, I have a couple of things. I'm, I tend not to talk too much about what I'm doing until I've done it. But I, I do want to say, Robert, that you forgot, not forgot, but I we didn't cover one thing hmm. which was you giving me the job of angry birds rio which was really important for me and i i want to thank you for did that. i do that i yeah, don't i remember that. very little but it probably was just so obvious that you were the right person for it that it was an easy decision to make yeah often it's funny you said you know i can't take credit i mean i feel the same way which is sometimes things just are so obvious and you were so ready to be where you were at that moment and there was no there's never a challenge i think that 
in some ways also we we haven't covered it but it's really wonderful that you are part of also a new cohort of new composers composers who happen to identify as women composers that have been in the background too long and I feel the energy of your group and it's really perfect mm-hmm. that you acknowledge and come out of a community that, you know, they're still, listen, look at Hans and John. They're still Titans, Harry. I mean, these are the, they've mm-hmm. defined this era, but there's a new group that you are absolutely one of the leaders of, which is so cool to see. It's just <laughs> cool. It's exciting for all of us that knew you when, when you were getting the coffee that day to say, wow. Mm -hmm. And now she's, now we march to her tune literally. Mm. So that's nice. That's just great. Well, you know, the person that also helped propel me was Tom McDougall. Mm, Nice. Um, Because he saw, you know, I forgot to say when I was at John's, I was already working on Coco. Mm. And I did some of the Coco sessions at his studio. Mm. And so I did have that, but it was just sort of off again, on again, as far as the songwriting goes. And and then eventually they started asking me to do a lot more. And so I having had co- worked on Coco, I think really helped me in another, you know, going up to another uh, level. Because I was able to, you know, produce 50 musicians for them in Mexico and orchestrate and do some additional and just writing all the songs with working with the filmmakers. I mean, that was a a pivotal film for me. But it's really Tom McDougall who saw me working as an orchestrator on Bolt (laughs) because I worked on Bolt Mm -hmm. and I orchestrated. And he saw me in the background and then I worked on Toy Story 3. Mm. I I worked with Randy Newman doing mock-ups through my friend Jonathan Sachs. So all these behind-the-scenes things kind of, like, prepared me, I think. I th- and so I just, if there's anything I want to say to people listening is that it's really important to believe in your your the love that you have for music and that, that the love of music is what, to me, drove me and still drives me. And whatever it is I have, you know, whatever thing you love, that's the thing that you may think, oh, I'm going to be stereotyped because I love that, like Latin music. I loved it. But it actually can become your strength. And so um, I feel like I want to encourage all the listeners to, you know, to to stick with it, even though um, you may feel like down and I'm not getting anywhere. Just keep going back to the communities that support you, and you will find a way. Yeah, I love that. And I think you left out one additional part of that, the love of music and the communities. But Jermaine is an example of someone who did the job that she was asked to do and didn't say, wait, I'm better than that, I'm more important, I've had more experience. And look where that added up to. That's what I love. It added up to this huge success. And it wasn't because, oh, she just got lucky and was in the right place. She worked. I'm talking about you in the third person. Forgive me. You worked. 
so consistently towards this moment. And that to me is something that for all of us who love music and work, saying yes to things with and trying not to say I'm better than that gig or I don't want to. I mean, I, I hear, you know, do I have to be an assistant? You know, I'm ready to compose my first film. And you're just like, okay, right. you'll just right now leave forever. Don't ever even enter this <laughs> arena again. You're so misguided about what it takes. So, Jermaine, I love talking to you. Loved it today and so proud to say I know you. And I'm just excited to see what comes next. And Kanto, too. We'll just leave it at that if there is <laughs> Thank one. Thank you, Robert. The Jermaine Franco story, starring Jermaine Franco, produced and scored by Jermaine Franco. I think that's it. <laughs> but thank you for today. I hope everybody who listens takes a page out of this book and goes back to work immediately after listening to our podcast and writes something beautiful. Jermaine, I will see you, I'm sure. I'm excited for what comes thank next. Peace. Right. Thanks a lot. See you soon.